Outlet Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. The Profile is brought to you in association with the magazine that I help edit. It's Premier Christianity. And if you would like a free sample copy of the very latest issue, why not head to our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The issue includes plenty of news, reviews, articles and more. Get it absolutely free, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. But today on The Profile, I'm speaking to Dr. Greg Garrett. He is an author and professor of English at Baylor University in America, where he teaches classes in fiction, screenwriting, literature, film, popular culture, and theology. He's one of the USA's leading voices when it comes to religion and culture, and his latest book is titled Living with the Living Dead, The Wisdom of the Zombie Apocalypse. Greg, that is quite the book title, isn't it? Thank you. Thank you. Yes, it is a great title. (laughs) It's not my title, and so I can say that. Fantastic. We're going to talk more about the book in a moment, but welcome to the show. It's great to have you uh, with us. Here on The Profile, we always like to go back and talk about a person's early life and how Mm -hmm. they first encountered Christianity. So what's your story in that regard? Well, I have a really sort of long-winded answer to that, as I'm sure people often do. Uh, I was raised Southern Baptist and uh, baptized uh, into that tradition very, very early. And um, I fled from that tradition when I graduated from high school. Um, There are many things that I continue to to love about that tradition, and I've just come from Greenbelt, where uh, the opening hymn for worship on Sunday morning was a song that I loved from the, the old Baptist hymnal. And so I, I still think about the music, and I stay in touch with many of the people that I was uh, in that church with. But it was not a tradition that was particularly good for me as a writer and artist, uh, because they didn't seem to value um, many of the things that I valued. And uh, I asked a lot of questions, and that was not particularly welcome, at least in my particular church. And uh, so for about 25 years, I was nothing. <laughs> And uh, one of the reasons that I write so much about uh, the intersection between faith and culture is that I know now that uh, many of the things that I was consuming during those years, uh, whether it was sort of obvious things like uh, the music of U2 uh, or things like uh, Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction, Mm -hmm. which doesn't necessarily have much of a Christian basis to it, but has some really strong, powerful spiritual themes to it. Um, During that time when I was not part of a formal faith community, I was... I was finding meaning and comfort in various ways in art and literature and music mm. and movies. And then uh, in, and this sounds so melodramatic, but in what I can only describe as the worst moment of my life, uh, I was suffering from chronic serious depression. I didn't know from day to day if I was going to survive. Um, I was um, welcomed back to the faith by an African-American Episcopal church mm. in East Austin, Texas, And they loved me back to health, and uh, they sponsored me for seminary, and I spent three years as a full-time seminarian exploring the possibility of parish ministry. And at the conclusion of that time, uh, it was decided amongst us, because we discern in community, that uh, my call was not to be a parish priest, but to continue to write and to speak and to preach, but to do so with um, a deeper level of involvement and engagement with theology. So since that time, um, I've been writing pretty much nonstop about the, uh, the ways that uh, secular culture, as we call it, 
expresses some kind of sacred meaning and uh, the ways that people from outside any faith tradition might be able to recognize the sacred impulses. Mm-hmm. So at what uh, moment did you realize that you were struggling with, with depression? I have known it much of my life, and uh, even when I didn't know it, I knew that I had a very sort of limited view of what life offered. Um, even as a teenager, uh, I had this this sense of the world as, as gray, and uh, so my emotional range was um, yeah. really reduced. And even though uh, as a teenager I wasn't you know experiencing life threatening depression, uh, it was the the early sort of stages of that. Mm. And then as an adult, um, after uh, my marriage broke up, uh, and often serious depression can be launched by a, you know, a terrible life event, mm-hmm. um, I spent several years where uh, I was uh, on medication and in therapy, and uh, before I found this faith community, just convinced that I was doomed. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think probably, uh, if left to myself, I, I would have been. And um, so when I said earlier, I don't mean to be melodramatic, Mm. I I have this very clear sense that uh, the church saved me, and this particular church saved me. And that, I think, is one of the things that uh, people in ministry need to be aware. Mm. And I I think for the most part they are, but um, the the pain and the suffering of the people in the pews. Mm. Um, Had that not been recognized by Mm. the people around me and by the priest, in that parish. I wouldn't be alive today. When you first went away from faith, was that an intellectual thing? You mentioned something about your questions not being answered. You know, it was less intellectual and more emotional, I think. Um, I had this feeling of not fitting in, um, in the, the church where I was raised. And so it wasn't so much that I had doubts um, as it was that I wasn't made to feel welcome mm-hmm. in the same sort of sense that this later church brought me in and, and, and loved me. Um, and, and there was the sense that um, because I couldn't believe in the same things that they believed in, in the same way that they did, that I didn't belong. Mm-hmm. And I understand that. And, you know, in later years, I was able to understand that they were trying to give me what they thought of was the very best thing that they had. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I could just have believed alongside them, you know, that would have been great. But um, the, the time that I spent in the wilderness, I, I was looking for spiritual things. And I tried some other traditions. I thought very seriously about converting to Judaism. Mm-hmm. I read a lot of Buddhist um, mindfulness stuff. But um, I've really sort of come to believe what the Dalai Lama says, that, you know, culturally speaking, we are probably part of a certain religious tradition. And for us to, to leave that tradition without exploring all the, the ways that it might be manifested is probably a mistake. And um, now, of course, I feel completely happy um, that I've found a community in which art and beauty and, and writing mm. are, are valued. I, I love the fact that questions are welcome mm. in this tradition, yeah. and that doubt is not something that uh, disqualifies you from membership, mm. uh, but is an invitation to further conversation. Yeah. Uh, and that brings us on to, to your work. You know, a lot of your work is looking at culture, is bringing in some of these other things. I'm, I said before, you're now a professor of English at Baylor University. What was it about English that excited you at quite a young age? Because you've you studied English from, from quite early on and progressed with it through yeah. a sort of academic yeah. process, didn't you? Well, if you look at all the sort of diverse parts of my life as a, a writer, a speaker, a teacher, a preacher, 
um, they're all centered in some way around story. Mm. And I've been writing stories since I was very young. Mm-hmm. Um, I was uh, maybe four or five when I first started writing and illustrating stories. Wow. And uh, my grandmother, my grandma Irene, who is 97 years old, has uh, a file in her filing cabinet of all these, these things. I think she's really? holding them in hopes that they will become valuable. <laughs> um, they, they never will. But it's, it's something that I've always been drawn to. I've, I've wanted to know who people were and why they did what they did. And for me, stories are about you know, the exploring of human character and, and human decisions. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's, that's what I do when I teach, and I teach people how to write their own stories. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I teach screenwriting and fiction writing, and some of my students have been very successful. Um, I teach. Give us, give us some names. Go on. Uh, well, one of my students is Derek Haas, who's a writer and executive producer of all of the Chicago shows on the uh, American television. Yeah. And uh, he and his writing partner wrote uh, 310 to Yuma, which is, I think, a really powerful film with a lot of theological mm-hmm. issues at work. Um, and then I've had a couple of students uh, who've um, written short stories and, and novels and not achieved, you know, that kind of like shimmering success. But. Um, but have, have done yeah. well and been able to uh, tell the stories they wanted to tell. Very difficult area to kind of make it in, though, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's, it's crazy hard. Um, I think the odds of publishing a novel are something like one in 400. Wow. Something like yeah. that. And uh, the odds of getting your feature film made, I, I, <laughs> I, don't, even, I don't even know. But uh, in, in teaching people to tell stories and in yes. teaching people to appreciate stories, mm. um, I'm drawn to the same kinds of things. You know, mm. human beings and extremists. And the decisions that they make and what that reveals about them and what we can learn from those decisions. Mm. You studied English all the way up to PhD level. But um, after that, I understood you undertook postdoctoral studies regarding the Holocaust. Yeah. Why was that? Well, that for me is one of the hardest moments in human history. And um, I wanted to understand as much as I was capable of understanding about it. Mm. And also, this was during a time when I was still sort of outside of a formal faith tradition. I really wanted to understand how um, faithful Jews were able to remain faithful in the face of what looks like this horrific abandonment. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I don't know that I would have been able to explain this consciously Mm -hmm. at that time. But in my own life, I was starting to feel as though I was abandoned. And I think that I was looking for that uh, sort of lifeline in the study of their stories. So that is probably where that comes from, uh, although at the time I'm not sure I could have explained it. It was mm-hmm. just like, I think I need to do this, is about as, as far as I probably could have said it's at the time. a subconscious thing. Yeah, 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 I think so. Did you find any answers on, on either of those levels as to either, you know, how could something as horrific as that happen in such recent history, and then also finding some resolution to your own sense of abandonment within your own faith tradition? You know, the, the most powerful thing for me is a story that Elie Wiesel tells about uh, putting God on trial in the camps. And uh, so the Jews put God on trial, and he is found guilty of abandoning them. And then the rabbi says, all right, now it's time to go sing Shabbat. And they go off and they worship. Mm. And that for me was such a powerful statement. And it reminds me of a, a lot of the Psalms. Mm. Um, you know, we, we think of the Psalms sometimes as comfort food, and many of them are not. They are, you know, I'm alone and I'm deserted, and yet I believe that you will come to my rescue. And um, there is this, this powerful sense of even though I don't see you or feel you at this moment, I believe that we are still in relationship. 
And that has been something that I was able to hold on to during some of my own darkest times. And that ultimately sort of led me back into the tradition because I don't think I ever stopped believing in God. Uh, I just didn't like the way that I'd been treated by some of God's best friends. Mm. And uh, later I found some other friends, you know, who were able to uh, sort of welcome me in a way that, that felt much more congenial. Mm. Yeah. So let's uh, let's talk a bit about your work now. I mentioned before you're a cultural commentator and critic. I guess some Christians, though, they, they resist what they would see as a kind of ungodly culture and they would want to cut themselves off from anything that, that isn't explicitly Christian in some way. You have other Christians, though, who want to embrace the culture. And if culture is moving in a particular direction, perhaps on an ethical or moral level, there's an assumption that or well, maybe God is in that and God is calling us to a different way of understanding something, even if it contradicts what we thought before. Yeah. Where do you fall on that scale? Well, you know, I was raised in a tradition that was very suspicious of the culture. And uh, there was a sense that um, if, we, if we circled the wagons and consumed nothing but Christian culture, would we, we would be safe. Mm. Um, we would probably be bored, but we would be safe. <laughs> and um, so I, I grew up in that tradition where we were not encouraged, you know, to go to movies and, and uh, watch television and read widely. And yet, you know, during that time that I spent outside of a faith tradition, I have all of this anecdotal evidence of my own, like, continuing faith journey as I'm listening to Octung Baby or as I'm watching Pulp Fiction uh, or, you know, as I'm, I'm reading, you know, um, Tolkien. Mm -hmm. And um, so my own sense, and obviously sort of uh, where I fall based on all of this writing that I do, is that there are two really valuable things that come out of engaging the culture. Um, the first is this sort of Augustinian sense um, that when we find truth and beauty, even if it's not Christian in nature— um, Augustine would tell us that where we find truth and beauty, they point us back in the direction of the author of truth and beauty. So there is, there is something to be paid attention to uh, in these moments when we find something, a, a, a retelling mm -hmm. of one of our powerful stories, for example, even if it's you know, at the hands of Quentin Tarantino. Mm -hmm. It's a practical matter as well, because it's not just about uh, sermon illustration, although it can be. Mm. But it, it's also about reaching out to people who are outside the tradition, who are using culture to make some kind of meaning. Um, so, you know, if they're watching Game of Thrones and they're learning something about um, self-sacrificial heroism in the character of Jon Snow, for example, there are some obvious ways that you can lay breadcrumbs back to the tradition, back to the gospel, back even to Jesus. And, and not in any way to be flippant here. Yeah. But, you know, when we talk about Christ figures in literature and culture, we are talking about characters who in some way partake of some of the qualities that we want the world to know about in our own faith. I am a big believer that with discernment, mm -hmm. I mean, you should know when something is bad for you or bad for your children and, and pay attention to that. But with discernment, this is one of the most powerful ways that we can engage with people outside the walls of the church in ways that will tell them what we're about inside the mm. walls. So kind of drawing parallels between, you know, Jon Snow is this self-sacrificial hero, and, and so is Jesus. Is that, is that the direction we it, were there's, to go? There's more, there's more than that. I know it's but, more complicated than that, but yeah. often you do see in Christian culture people saying, well, you know, here's what Game of Thrones can teach you about the gospel. Yeah. Um, 
some people will say there's too much of that. I mean, isn't just, isn't Game of Thrones just Game of Thrones? And do we need to be hijacking this with, you know, Jesus every five minutes? Well, you know, at the end of the day, people who are loving Game of Thrones are not loving it because they think, ah, oh, well, isn't Jon Snow a sacrificial figure like Jesus? But it is a way of engaging that. Mm. And one of the things that I often talk about with ministry professionals is that in the church, we are often not as good at telling our stories as the culture is. Um, after I wrote my book about Harry Potter, and, and this weekend at Greenbelt, I was saying, you know, those 4,100 pages are one of the best retellings of the Christian gospel that there is. And so the kind of paradox is part of the reason that I think it is so popular is because people engage with those powerful themes in it. Mm. And so it's not just simply, you know, Jon Snow, self-sacrificial hero, Jesus, self-sacrificial hero. But it's also not to say that those things don't mm. matter either. Mm. There's like an underlying theme that the two both yeah. represent. Yeah. And so when we talk about Jon Snow or Harry Potter or um, Frodo, and we say, well, this is, this is what we are called to. It's, it's the same kind of message we would say, you know, when we're paying attention to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it teaches us what we're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. And it's a way of doing, in some way, the same sort of thing, but in a medium that people are consuming now. Other Christians might take a, a slightly different approach to some of these things. We've, we've mentioned Game of Thrones a few times already. That's a classic um, piece of media that Christians are arguing over at the moment. And you yeah. have many who sit on your side of the fence saying this is a wonderful opportunity for the church to talk about the gospel. And you have others who say, but hang on, this is gratuitous sex and violence. And us as Christians shouldn't, shouldn't even be watching this, yeah. let alone um, bringing out theological comparisons. So, so why would you as a Christian feel comfortable watching something like Game of Thrones where there is a huge amount of sex and violence? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And this actually goes all the way back... Uh, my first book on religion and culture was co-written with um, a pastor. And we wrote that book about the Matrix films, right. which, of course, yeah. are R-rated and incredibly violent, mm -hmm. and there's sex. The thing that uh, sort of convinced us, even though there are these elements that we find unpalatable, um, part of it is, is just the understanding that this is the nature of the entertainment. And, in fact, in the zombie book, I talked about how I personally am a Christian pacifist. But you can't tell entertaining stories about a Christian pacifist in the zombie apocalypse, um, because conflict in this particular form is represented by violence. Yeah. And so partly it's a genre thing. And, um, you know, some stories uh, have magic wands, some have ray guns, some have samurai swords. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you just sort of make the, the movement toward more visceral mm -hmm. violence as you get into those particular things. But for me, as somebody taking a look at these stories I am always drawn to stories that are incredibly culturally current because what I want to ask as both a theologian and a cultural critic is what needs are being served for people in these stories and how can we find a way to connect with that? And so while I am absolutely uh, sympathetic to the view that um, Game of Thrones is violent and sexual and you may not want to watch it, um, it's also true that at the moment it's the most popular TV show on the planet. So if you can balance that in terms of your own discernment. The zombie stories were hard for me. Um, I don't like violence. Mm -hmm. And I particularly don't like people's intestines being exposed for all the world to see. And that happens in a lot of these mm -hmm. stories. And yet there was also this very clear sense that if this is as popular a narrative as it is, mm -hmm. 
um, that I really sort of need to understand it so that I can explain it to people. So where's, where's the line for you in terms of, you know, when it comes to Christians engaging in culture? Is it is, is there a line in terms of, well, I can't go beyond that in terms of the, the content? Or is it more just, well, I can't go beyond that line because I can't justify it because not enough people are engaging with that, so there's no point for me talking about it as a Christian? Oh, that's interesting. So that's, that's almost a personal versus professional kind of question. It's a fascinating one, though, because those two things intertwine. I mean, yeah. I, I imagine most professions have sort of ethical issues for Christians engaging with them. Yeah. I imagine for you as a cultural critic, there's a, there is an element of where does my personal conscience sit within what I'm professionally being asked to engage with, and does this conflict somehow with my morality? Yeah, and, and I think, you know, as I understand sin and disordered desire, um, as popular as pornography is, I would not want to study it no. and talk about the needs that are being served for people yeah. that are consuming it, because I believe that that would be damaging for me and for my relationships. I don't have the same sort of feel about, um, for example, the sexuality in Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. even though it is sometimes fairly explicit, um, because I see it as largely being, how can I put this, in, in service to a story, and that story is the thing that I am drawn to. Um, so I think it's entirely possible that I could look at things that are very, very popular and culturally current and say, I, I cannot be engaged in, in this because it is wrong for me. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think every Christian has to make that choice for him or herself. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, pastors who might say, yeah, I'm going to preach about Game of Thrones this Sunday. Mm. And then pastors who say, I will never watch an episode of Game of Thrones. Mm. And, and I think, you know, either of those can be justified. Yeah. And I guess in your own kind of background, you've you've experienced the breadth of the church not only in your own personal walk but i guess what you do now you speak to christians of very different backgrounds yeah across the spectrum and and i think one of the things that's been really valuable for me as a christian is to have a foot in the evangelical world that i Mm. was raised in and uh, a foot in a more progressive kind of christianity and to see if there are ways that those things can be synthesized Mm. my family is still evangelical my uh, younger brother is a southern baptist pastor in alabama you cannot get more Southern Baptist than that. <laughs> and yet, as I was saying earlier, there's still some things about that tradition that resonate with mm. me. And these are people that I love. You wrote, um, you wrote a book with Brennan Manning, yeah. the Franciscan priest who uh, died a few years ago, but many will be aware of, I think, particularly his, his book, Ragamuffin Gospel. Yeah. Very, very influential. What are your memories of working with someone like that? He was so widely respected and loved. Yeah, and sadly, my memories are non-existent because he was so close to the end of his life that all of our contact actually took place. I mean, basically, it was an epistolary relationship um, because he was in uh, decline at that point. And so the relationship that we had was largely around our deciding what the the novel was going to be about Mm. and what some of the central conflicts were going to be. Uh, For him, the most potent expression of the Christian gospel is the parable of the prodigal son. Mm. And uh, so he he really wanted to do a contemporary retelling of the the prodigal son story, which is why the, the book is called The Prodigal. And even though he was, you know, this million-selling person who reshaped the course of American Christianity, he was always suspicious of religious celebrity. Mm. And one of the things that happens both here and in the States is that sometimes the messenger gets confused for the message. Mm. And uh, so we made the decision together to make the the character who falls from grace a a megachurch pastor. The biggest influence that Brennan actually had on me was that I went back and reread all of the work. 
because at that point, there was not much of Brennan actually left Mm. to interact with. But his words were so vibrant and so powerful. And I tried to find as many ways as I could as as I could to bring him to life on the page. Mm. And uh, so there is actually a character in The Prodigal who is based on Brennan. Mm. Uh, And I did not ask his permission. (laughs) And I don't think I would have gotten it because, as I I said, he was completely against any sort of religious celebrity. Mm. But um, I wanted somebody who could embody Brennan's life in words. And uh, so I, I made him the, the Catholic priest in the small town that um, my fallen character comes back to. Yeah. Um, so for me, the biggest thing was kind of re-experiencing the power of his words. And had I gotten the chance to meet him and work with him five years earlier, it would have been a, a different kind of experience. Yeah. Um, I knew going in that I was going to be doing the heavy lifting on mm-hmm. the book and that, um, you know, our our interaction was going to be largely on the front end. Mm. And in fact, he died shortly after I finished writing the book. And uh, so he did not see it in print. Mm. Um, But uh, people who have known him well have told me that he would have liked it. And of course, that was Mm. my hope. Um, You know, because in being asked to collaborate with a figure of that magnitude, um, you you want it to represent him well. Mm. And... um, and I, I think it does. It's it's a book about um, God's radical love and forgiveness, mm-hmm. and that was what he preached all of his life, and and that's what I tried to to write about in that novel. That's wonderful. It's that sort of retelling of a biblical story as well. Must have been a lot of fun to undertake. Yeah, and you know what I realized is that only part of the story could be the story of the prodigal son. Um, and in fact, it's just the first two chapters out of about 10 or 12 in the book. Because what is really interesting about that story is we don't know what happens the next morning. No, yeah. And in fact, in most of our great stories, that whole happily ever after is actually the hard work. <laughs> it's like, hooray, we're in love. <laughs> Everything is easy now. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm married and we have two kids and it is not easy. Right. Yeah. Every day is hard and beautiful. And so I thought, what is it going to be like for him to come back home, not just to this village where everybody knows what he did, but in this 24-7 media world, in this social media world where everybody on the planet knows what he did? I mean, how is he going to live with the shame of, uh, of what he did that you know, sort of caused him to fall from grace? Um, how is he going to learn to reconnect with his family? Yeah. Um, and uh, in... Our story, the prodigal, I made the older brother of Jesus' story an older sister, but it's still the same sort of thing. Here's, mm. here's the sibling who was steady and present and did all the right things, and she's not happy, <laughs> you know? And any more than you imagine that the older brother in Jesus' story is going to get up the next morning and go, all right, mate, all is forgiven. <laughs> You've been gone all this time. I took on all this stuff. No worries. Yeah. Um, and so that was the really fascinating mm. thing because— I think um, it, it sort of moved from being just a retelling to really sort of midrash. Mm, yeah. You know, what's, what's, what's the untold part of this story? Yeah. The original, if I can put it that way, uh, <laughs> it does end on a cliffhanger, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. We don't really know what happens next. So, uh, yeah, if you, wanna, if you wanna know what happens next, or one possible interpretation one of what happens possible, next, yeah. do get a hold of that. Uh, it's called The Prodigal. Well, that's the end of part one on The Profile this afternoon on Premier Christian Radio. But join us again. We'll be right back after this. 
It's 500 years since Martin Luther hammered home his message that kick-started the Protestant Revolution. In the October edition of Premier Christianity, we ask what exactly did the Reformation do for us, featuring leading voices on both sides of the debate, a dialogue between a Catholic and Protestant on trading places, and a look at the women who influenced the movement. Plus interviews with Christy Wimber on why she chose to close her thriving charismatic church, the family who have instituted tech-free Sundays, and stories of faith behind the bars of of an immigration removal centre. Ask for your free sample copy at premierchristianity.com slash free sample. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. Time now for the second part of my interview with one of the leading commentators on Christianity and culture, Greg Garrett. I want to talk about uh, another one of your books, which um, many people will have uh, be aware of, and that is The Other Jesus, which argued that faith that focuses solely on personal morality and the afterlife misses, in your view, much of the point of Jesus' message. And I think a lot of people immediately want to ask, well, what exactly is it that Christianity should be focused on if we're not focused on personal morality and going to heaven when we die? Yeah. Well, here's the sort of thing. If the life of Jesus is our model, then we are supposed to be making ethical decisions around that that we live out in our everyday lives. Mm-hmm. And for me, the, the two sort of central things that I look at, um, what are we supposed to be doing and how are we supposed to be doing it with each other? And uh, so I think about the, the sole commandment of Jesus in the Gospel of John, which is love. And it is, it is radical love. Mm-hmm. You know, love so much that you're willing to give everything you have and everything you are. And, um, I mean, that is hard to do on a day-to-day basis, but I think we fall short of that a lot in the American church. And then I think, just in terms of the focus on the afterlife, this is changing in the American evangelical community with people like Jim Wallace and Brian Mm -hmm. McLaren. But for the longest time, there was this sense reflected in things like Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham Jail, where there were two distinct Christianities in America. One which was this sort of um, morality-based, I'm going to heaven and really nothing here matters kind of way of Mm -hmm. of being a follower of Jesus. And then Martin Luther King's way, which is, you know, a gospel that is not centered on the lives of the people living it now, is uh, is a false gospel. And um, I have always inclined over in that way. Um, So for me, it was just a way of talking about how in my own faith journey, I found this particular kind of faith to be life-giving for mm-hmm. me and to be a kind of faith that I could live into when I found it really the sort of opposite mm-hmm. uh, to, to be a part of that other tradition where it really is you're just sort of marking time until Jesus comes back. Yeah, yeah. H- have your own views on the afterlife developed and changed over that time as well? Because I, I know you have written on, on that issue specifically, yeah, what happens yeah. when we die. I, yeah, I have gone through a, a, an interesting sort of evolution, which was, you know, in the beginning it was all about, well, and, and I will tell you that in my tradition it was actually not so much about going to heaven as it was not going to hell. Uh, because what we were preached Sunday after Sunday was, this is what you want to avoid. Right. This is so awful. Don't go here. Um, and so when I left the church, I think for a long time I thought I, I may have been bamboozled. In, in all of this. I'm not sure what I believe about an afterlife. Mm-hmm. 
And then when I came into the Episcopal Church, where there's this really wide range of theological belief. Because on a lot of things. On a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, because it's not so much about theological agreement as it is about liturgical. Okay. You know, because, you know, um, on an average Sunday, uh, I can sit, you know, next to a lesbian couple and uh, a person who disapproves of gay marriage. Mm-hmm. And we all meet at the table mm-hmm. because that is what, you know, makes us Episcopalian. And I think, you know, first it was, I am all in on the afterlife. I don't care about the afterlife. And now where I am is, I think there is an afterlife, and I don't know what exactly it is. Mm-hmm. But Rowan Williams talks about how the God who loves us and who created us and loves us will not abandon us. And I have this very strong sense that I am going to be in relationship with my creator. And whether that looks like my grandma believes it does, which is mansions and streets of gold, Mm -hmm. uh, or whether it looks like a baseball field in Iowa, Mm -hmm. uh, or or whether it looks like something I can't even imagine, Mm -hmm. I have actually sort of given up my need to know. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so what I would say now is I do believe in an afterlife, and I believe that people are separated from God or connected to God in that afterlife. but it's actually kind of refreshing mm. not to have to devote a whole lot of energy to thinking about what exactly mm. it looks like, uh, but just to live in that trust that I will not be abandoned. It's a huge issue, isn't it? It seems like, to a certain extent, though, in your work, you are drawn to some of the big issues. Because I know you've yeah. written, for example, on, on suffering. And you know that question of how can a good, all-powerful, loving God allow us to suffer yeah. has um, got Christians thinking and writing down through the, through the centuries. Down through the centuries. Well, and, and I think that, you know, the big questions are the ones worth thinking about. Mm. Um, if you're a writer, what you are saying is, I'm going to spend two or three years of my life learning about and thinking about and praying about this issue mm. in hopes of understanding it better when I come out on the other side. And so for that book on suffering, and of course, I, I had known plenty of, of personal suffering, And the book itself was prompted um, by the summer that I spent as a hospital chaplain at the primary care hospital in in, uh, Austin, where, you know, if you had drowned or had a drug overdose or been in a car crash, I mean, that's that's where you were taken to the emergency room. And so there was a whole lot of suffering in in that setting. And what I did in that book, uh, and when I started to write the book, I had no idea what was going to happen. But as with most of my work, it began to center around story. So what are the stories that we tell ourselves about suffering? And, you know, one of the stories is that if we're suffering, we must deserve it, which is not a story that I believe anymore. And so what I did in that book was I tried to examine the stories, harmful, helpful. Um, most of them fall apart at some point in the face of suffering. Right. They, they get tugged uh, apart mm-hmm. in some sense, and we have to find a new way of thinking about where God is present in that. Ultimately, where I came down... I was helped by the sermons of an American pastor. He was a Southern Baptist who became an Episcopal priest, John Claypool. And uh, he, printed, he, he published four of the most famous uh, sermons in contemporary American Christianity, which were on the, the illness and death of his young daughter. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we talk in homiletics about how you want to have at least enough command over your topic that you're not bleeding from the pulpit. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is, it, it is very raw. Mm. And uh, as he works his way through his own theological thinking about loss and where God is in the presence of this, he comes down ultimately on gratitude, mm. strangely enough. 
and that you can feel gratitude for having ever had this because you didn't have to have it in the first place. It was a free gift of God. And um, that, I thought, is such an amazing and, and frankly, kind of countercultural way Mm -hmm. to think about it. Because often we think about it in terms of deserving. You know, I've been a good person. I don't deserve this. And so, you know, I thought about it in terms of gratitude. And then I was really empowered by the the Celtic teachings about Jesus as our friend and companion. And uh, that that sort of idea that that we are accompanied in our grief. Mm -hmm. Maybe not rescued from it, but always accompanied. And, and that, for me, was a powerful way to think about it as well. That's excellent. So we should come then to the latest book. We've talked about a lot of your work, and of course you've written many, many books on a variety of subjects without time to go into all of them. But this new one, which is out now, is Living with the Living Dead, The Wisdom of the Zombie Apocalypse, which I've already said is an incredible title. Um, I really want to hear more about this. So this is cultural commentary on this idea of a zombie apocalypse, which actually, maybe we should start with that phrase as it is, because I've noticed that phrase of, um, people talk about the impending zombie apocalypse. Yeah. It's kind of become a cultural thing, hasn't it, in, in recent years? You hear people talking about it. Yeah, it's it's a, become a cultural touchstone. And, of course, it started out as just, you know, uh, in geek culture, you know, where uh, I'm a gamer and I'm, I'm killing zombies with my friends from around the world. Or, um, you know, Shaun of the Dead is one of my favorite movies. Or Zombieland. Or uh, I'm a big fan of The Walking Dead, as many people on the planet are. Um, but it, it, it has leaped out of... Um, sort of teen culture into in, uh, all of culture. Mm. Uh, you'll find the phrase zombie apocalypse in headlines in the Financial Times and The Economist. Wow. There was a, a cover on the New Statesman, uh, and the, the title was. was The Zombie Prime Minister. Yes, about Theresa May, wasn't it? Yeah, it yeah. was indeed. And Very um, uh, very striking image as well. They'd really gone to town on the illustration. Yeah, I think they were trying to make some sort of point there. <laughs> uh, but, you know, for me as a, a cultural critic, when, when something achieves that kind of, kind of culture-wide uh, presence, mm. you know, not just in, you know, movies and TV and games, but in apps and material culture and behavior like zombie runs and mm. zombie pub crawls and in magazines for accountants. Yeah then you think there, there is something going on here that needs to be mm. explored. So the zombie apocalypse is, a, is an important part of that. But, I mean, as we'll talk about in just a second, the apocalyptic part is also important mm. uh, because the genre of apocalyptic literature goes back thousands of years. And it is always about people in extremists mm. um, who feel like whatever... For whatever reason, the world is ending or what we think is the world is ending. So I guess the book of Revelation being the biblical example of a yeah. apocalypse in terms of a genre of book. Yeah, the, the apocalypse of John is the way the book is, is sometimes described. So what, what do we do when we are surrounded by menace? And how can we be faithful in the face of the end of the world? And is the future something to be feared or hoped for? Mm. And, and those are all things that are addressed in all kinds of apoc- apocalyptic literature, but they're also in the zombie apocalypse. Right. So what's the kind of uh, <clears throat> angle you take on all this? I guess from a Christian perspective? Yeah. Um, it is definitely from a Christian perspective. And um, there are two things that sort of inform it. Um, one is the comparison between zombies and humans. And uh, in many of the stories, starting with George Romero's Dawn of the Dead, mm-hmm. in which uh, zombies wander around in a shopping mall in death as they had in life, 
uh, a not particularly veiled, you know, mm. uh, cultural critical commentary on on the consumerism that drives many human beings. Um, there, there are a lot of places of comparison between human beings and zombies that allow us to ask some really powerful theological and, and, and spiritual questions. And uh, sort of the, the starting point for me was the statement of uh, the uh, early church father Irenaeus, that the glory of God is the human being fully alive. And many human beings, it seems to me, are sunk in something very much like death. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are not mindful or grateful uh, they are often um, defining themselves by what they consume as opposed to what they do or what they are. And so in a really powerful way, a lot of these stories, uh, Shaun of the Dead, for example, I mean, that title really sort of says it all. When we meet him at the beginning of the story, um, we find him and uh, his girlfriend and his uh, best mate and her housemates uh, in the Winchester pub. And she is breaking up with him because she says, you know, I I feel like this is living death. I want to live a little, she says to him. And I want you to want that too. Mm -hmm. And in the course of the story, that is actually the arc of his character. He goes from being Sean of the dead to Sean fully alive Mm -hmm. in that sort of sense of Irenaeus. Mm -hmm. Uh, He discovers what it is that's worth living for and how human beings are different, you know, that uh, they can they can uh, live for something larger than themselves, and that they can be sacrificial. And uh, one of the things that sort of reminds me of this, there are three things that Sean has on the little chalkboard on his refrigerator: uh, go round mums, uh, get Liz back, sort life out. <laughs> and it's it's a, a movie, and as many of these stories are about life and what it means to be fully alive. Yeah. So that comparison between zombies and humans was one of the things that I wanted to explore theologically. Mm. Uh, And then the second thing is I did an interview early on with Angela Kang, who is a writer and executive producer on The Walking Dead television show. And this statement sort of helped me to reshape in my head what this book was going to be about. She said, "Um, The Walking Dead is not about zombies. It's about the human beings and the ethical choices that they make to survive. Mm. And uh, many people read the zombie apocalypse primarily as a post-9-11, post-7-7 kind of narrative where we have all of these threats that we face in everyday life. Um, you know, there, as I walk back out on the sidewalk today, there could be a terror attack here in London, uh, in Paris, where I was theologian in residence this summer. I was walking on the Champs-Élysées 30 minutes before a, a car full of explosives ran into a police car. And so we know that we live in this world in which threat is an everyday reality. But terror is hardly the only threat. And one of the things that I noticed uh, in the historical research that I did for the book is that there are these flashpoints in human history, um, the Black Plague and uh, during the Middle Ages, the uh, trench warfare in World War I, the Holocaust, where the dead get up and walk around in our art and culture. And uh, so the, the zombies can sort of stand in for them in some way. But what's really interesting about the zombie stories is what the humans do in reaction to those threats and the ethical choices that they make. And in uh, the most recent uh, copy of Christianity, the magazine, you had this wonderful uh, interview with Stanley Hauerwas. We did indeed, yeah. Uh, who is one of my very favorite theologians, maybe the great living Christian ethicist. And what Stanley Hauerwas says is that we understand ethics best in an adventure story. Because in an adventure story, we are able to see the decisions that characters make and what consequences mm. those decisions have. Yeah. And, and that's true of these characters. And uh, 
they have the chance to to live up to the the best to be a human fully alive mm. and there are some who live down to the very worst yeah um and in each of these stories there there are really interesting ethical questions mm, absolutely uh yeah. about the use of violence about um our um calling to be part of a community mm. um that that are really explored in a fascinating way yeah and what you're so adeptly doing there is you're watching stories or films Shaun of the Dead or, or whatever and you're bringing in a wider perspective partly religious partly cultural and you're asking deeper questions I guess of whatever you're watching whatever you're engaging with is that something you want to see more Christians do not just simply sit there and consume media but actually ask questions about it and, and use it as a springboard to talk about bigger theological issues I, I would actually like everybody to do that and, you know, when I write these books, I'm, I'm writing them for Christians, but I'm also writing them for people who are fans of the culture that I'm trying to explore. So, you know, when I wrote my book on U2, it was used by a lot of Christians. Mm. But there are also people who picked it up who are simply huge U2 fans. Yeah. And what I am hoping is that people will think more deeply about the culture that they consume because it will also kind of force them to think about their humanity mm. um, and what it is that they're called to, who they're supposed to be. I mean... We know that every human being is a spiritual being. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how we're created. And to get people to interrogate uh, themselves and um, these these issues in a, in a deeper way, I think, is mm -hmm. a valuable thing, whether you're a person of faith yeah. or a person outside of faith. Um, and, of course, my deep hope is that this is something that will lead them toward faith mm -hmm. in some way. But even if they never set foot inside the walls of the church, they've had the chance to think about, what is it that I'm, I'm here to do? And, you know, who am I supposed to do it with? And, you know, what, what is the purpose of all this? Mm. What would you describe your calling as? Oh, you know, I think I was really sort of circling around it right there. Um, and if everything that I do is about story, whether it's writing my own stories or expl explicating someone else's stories or, or preaching um, story or teaching people to read, more carefully, whether that's pop culture or literature. Um, particularly since seminary, I have this really strong sense of my own vocation mm. um, as being a person who is calling people to explore themselves through the stories that they consume mm -hmm. and to explore their faith and the decisions that they make. And um, so I think that is my primary calling to, in a very real sense, teach people why we're here and what it is we're supposed to be doing. And uh, so, you know, a part of that is my identity as preacher. Mm. But um, I also believe that, you know, that every part of creation preaches if we pay attention to mm. it. You've been here in the UK at things like Greenbelt, and I know you travel quite widely. What are the things that you notice in the UK church? Either strengths or weaknesses, perhaps things that we can learn from your setting in Texas mm. or... Um, other things that, that you've witnessed as you've traveled and you've looked at Christianity in, in significant breadth? Well, one of the things that I am always drawn to in the UK is just the connection to the original sort of Celtic Christianity, which is uh, so much more incarnational than much of American Christianity. Uh, because we were talking earlier about the suspicion that many American Christians have, not just of culture, but of the world itself. And in many Christian traditions in the States, there is this tendency to think of the world itself as fallen. Um, and certainly in the Church of England and in the Episcopal Church, which, which grew out of it, there is this, this connection to the original Celtic ideas that, you know, God is present. 
you know, God is not creation, but God is revealed by creation. And so to think of the world as fallen is to sort of misread um, the way that God operates in the world. Um, I think parts of the the church in the UK are are now partaking of the evangelical traditions that are very strong in America. And many of the churches that are growing in the UK, of course, are evangelical churches. Mm-hmm. But I think evangelism has become such a dirty word in many uh, more formal Christian traditions mm-hmm. yeah. that it is something that maybe should be explored a little bit more. And uh, the evangelism that I grew up with uh, sort of grew out of the Jesus movement that uh, was uh, profiled in the latest issue of Christianity. Thank you for the plug again. That's very kind. And um, (laughs) so it was uh, the sort of thing where, um, you know, our church would drop us on a street corner and say, all right, you're going to go tell people about Jesus for the next hour. And for me as a capital I introvert, I was like, okay, now I think I do understand what hell is. Um, but evangelism doesn't have to be that exactly. Um, in the Episcopal Church, for example, and I'm sure in many sort of old-line uh, Anglican communities, there's a reluctance to talk about church at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I love that, uh, that old song. I think Pete Seeger sings a version of it. Enya sings a version of it. How can I keep from singing? Um, if Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? And so I think that there has to be some way that we can explain to people how God is moving in our lives and in the lives of our communities and in the work that we're doing for peace and justice. And it does not have to be, you should believe exactly what I believe or you're going to hell. But it can certainly be, this is the story that I've oriented my life around. This is the God that I serve. This is the Savior I worship. How, however it, it comes out, in your life, um, I think that there has to be across all of our Christian traditions that that willingness to call people into the very best of what our lives are. I guess in talking a lot about culture, we should probably mention that the culture of America, as far as I understand it, is changing quite rapidly, arguably, um, particularly in relation to Christianity. So the general perception, actually, both of America and and the church in Europe, is that it's declining, that it's struggling that we live in an increasingly secular society in the West, even if for the rest of the world the opposite is true and talk of God and spirituality is growing. How can the church in America speak to what is arguably an increasingly secular culture? That is a challenging thing. Um, I have never seen America as divided as it is at this moment. The, The divisions politically in our country are are hard for me to imagine how they're going to be gapped because... What I discover is that many Americans are thinking of themselves primarily politically as opposed to religiously. Mm. And that's reflected in a lot of ways in um, this last presidential election. Well, even the term evangelical, it seems, is perceived as a political term yeah. before it is a religious one because 80-something percent of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. Right. And there's has long been this kind of conflating of republicanism and evangelicalism. Yeah, and of course, it's what Hauerwas would talk about as this sort of Constantinian um, belief. Um, people who think of themselves as American Christians, let's say, as opposed to Christian Americans. Right, yeah. Um, and despair is too strong a word because I don't believe in despair. Um, but I don't really, at this moment, know how the divides between us and America are going to be bridged. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the racial, the cultural, the political, and the religious. Um, and I do see a lot of really positive things happening. I, I see a lot of people in uh, evangelical traditions who are moving into the recognition that peace and justice work really does matter and that human dignity really does matter. And uh, so I think that that's a, a really positive thing and a place where maybe people can meet. Um, in my book that I wrote about the Episcopal Church and the Anglican tradition, uh, which came out a year or two ago, many people talk to me about the the desire that they have to find partners to do good work with, and that maybe we don't have to agree theologically about things, but that we can agree that this is a person in need or a community in need. Maybe you voted for Donald Trump. Maybe I voted for Hillary Clinton. Maybe you didn't vote at all because you thought both of those were ridiculous options. But maybe we can agree that this is a thing we can do together. And the rest of the conversation can wait. And I think that's happened in this country to a certain extent as well. You do see those on all sort of sides of the church engaging and the more social action kind of outreach. Is, yeah. is that the place where we can all meet and perhaps put our theological differences aside and agree that, theologically speaking, we should all be helping and loving people as Christians? Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. It's a disconcerting thing um, to not feel that you understand other people. Uh, because I am, I am a believer in the idea that you know we are all created in God's image, and that there should be plenty of things we have in common because mm. of that. And um, I just I'm looking at friends who I've known my entire life who I don't feel that I recognize anymore uh, because of things they say on social media mm. or uh, yeah. uh, things they post. And I'm sure they would say the same of me mm-hmm. because you know they they remember me in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And uh, now I have uh, changed in some sort of alarming way to them. But, you know, I do believe that, uh, as we have in Christian teaching, there's, there's plenty of room at the, the foot of the cross. Mm-hmm. And um, that, you know, um, there are so many ways that we can lose sight of what it is that we're supposed to be living for. Mm-hmm. And if we can just sort of be reoriented to that... Um, you know, and, and maybe sort of put, as we said, the American Christian, Christian American uh, back in its proper place. Mm, absolutely. Well, Greg, that's, uh, that's a good place to leave it. Thank you so much for coming in and talking about your work. The book, as I mentioned, is Living with the Living Dead, The Wisdom of the Zombie Apocalypse. It's out now and available from all good book stalls. But Greg, thank you for, so much for coming in and joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Sam. I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk to you. That brings us to the end of today's show here on Premier Christian Radio. You're listening to The Profile with me, Sam Hales. Hope you enjoyed that chat with Greg Garrett. Some fascinating thoughts there on Christianity and culture. If you're interested in finding out more about that intersection between Christianity, culture, faith, apologetics, why not pick up a copy of the very latest issue of Premier Christianity magazine? If you would like us to send you one for free in the post, why not go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample we'd be delighted to send you a copy and if you'd like to hear more interviews like this one with leading christian figures you can of course go to our website here on the profile that is premierchristianradio.com 
forward slash the profile and you can also now access this show as a podcast just through itunes or another uh, podcast provider why not go ahead and do that past episodes with all kinds of leading christian thinkers on a wide range of subjects thanks so much for joining me this afternoon do hope you've enjoyed it coming up next here on premier christian radio is dave rose with premier playback